Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in your New Testament. Pastor Steve has been teaching us this book. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So if you find the large number 4, that's the chapter heading, and the little numbers that follow are the verse markings. So you want chapter 4 and verse 13, and I'll read down into chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. This is what Holy Scripture says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you. You're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me again as I pray. Father, we acknowledge that what we do here today, we do in vain without you. And so we ask, dear God, that you would be present with us especially now as your word is open and declared, Lord, speak to us and remind us of the hope that is in Christ. We pray this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Well, it's not hard to see that we live in an incredibly diverse world. 
mean, you look around and you can see that there are so many different backgrounds and cultures and traditions and even religions. And depending on where you're from, people experience life so differently. What can seem so normal for one person can seem so very strange to another person who is living on the opposite side of the world and vice versa. But amidst all the differences, there is at least one experience that unites all of humankind, and it is coming face to face with the reality of death. Death is a universal experience shared across the world. Everyone knows what death is, and that's because death catches up to all of us. But when it comes to what happens after death, well, that's when people can have all different kinds of ideas of what actually goes on. I remember years ago talking to a friend about Jesus and matters of eternal life and eternal death, and it was a very difficult conversation because this friend believed that once you die, that's it. There's nothing else. There's no continuation of the soul. The body decays in the ground. You're just erased from the world. There is no consciousness. You just cease to exist. Is that really what happens? Is that just it? No more existence whatsoever. Still, there are others who believe in reincarnation. And there are others who believe that your your, your spirit just carries on in this world. Or you go to a better place, but there is no real clarity as to what the better place is. People love to believe in heaven, but it is not the heaven of the Bible. We live in a world where people can have all kinds of different ideas about what happens to the dead, and if we're not careful, we can subtly adopt and embrace the notions of this world that will ultimately prove to be insufficient in providing real hope to grieving hearts. So we need to ask, what really happens when a person dies? More specifically, the question that I want us to consider today from this text is, what happens when a Christian dies? Where are they now? Are they all right? Will we ever see them again? You see, these were probably some of the big questions the Thessalonians were asking and wrestling with themselves. It's important that we remember what their situation was like at the time this letter was written. If you were with us from the beginning of this series, you'll remember that right from the get-go, there was severe persecution that was experienced by this young church. You had missionaries being driven out. You had riots that were taking place just outside on the city streets. You had Christians that were being dragged out of their homes and into the courts. And all of that leads me to believe that some may have already died because of their faith in Christ. And if that wasn't true at this point in time, then they were most definitely living in greater fear of death because they were the targets of hostile persecution. I mean, beyond this kind of unique affliction and persecution, they still had to deal with death because of old age, sickness, accidents, and tragedies. Look, Christians aren't suddenly immune to death because they're a Christian. These things are still experienced by the people of God. And I'm sure you know this by your own experience, but death is not an easy topic to discuss. 
It's not an easy thing to talk about. Now more than ever, we live in a culture that would rather avoid or be distracted from any talk about death because death is unsettling. It makes us uncomfortable and and we're always afraid that we might say the wrong things to the wrong people and and, and those who who are grieving the loss of loved ones so it's just easier to avoid it altogether. But here, the Apostle Paul doesn't shy away from addressing this topic head on. And that's not because he's some kind of insensitive and heartless leader, but it's specifically because he has a sure and real hope to give to the people of God. In the story of our lives, we have experienced the death of believing loved ones. And if the Lord doesn't return in the chapter of our lifetime, we will without a doubt experience more deaths. In Grace Fellowship Church, we, we know what that's like. And all of that fills us with a kind of pain and sorrow that words can't fully describe. But even though that is the hard reality of our story, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that for those of us who are in Christ, that is not how the story ends. It doesn't end with dead bodies buried and and, and dead in, in the grave. There is a day that is coming when Jesus Christ will return and he will gather all of his people, every Christian from every age and generation in new resurrected bodies and we will be together with Jesus. And to steal straight from those, those fairy tale stories, our story will end with the words, and they lived happily ever after. Grace Fellowship Church, this is how our story ends. And our text here today shows us this great and comforting truth. Now, as we turn our attention to this passage in chapter 4, verse 13 to 18, I want us to actually begin by looking at the very last verse of this chapter. Because Paul makes it absolutely clear what it is that we're supposed to do with this text. So, look with me at verse 18. Paul concludes this chapter by saying, Therefore, because of all that he's written, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Therefore, encourage one another with these, right here, these words. You see, this is the only explicit command that Paul gives in this passage. In the face of death, there is where there's often so much pain, sorrow, and grief, we are to take these truths found in verses 13 to 17 and use it to comfort and fortify one another's faith. And it's so important that we understand that purpose from the beginning because this passage has become the source of many, many big debates and sharp disagreements about what happens in the end times. Which ironically produces more division and discouragement. It produces the opposite of what this text is meant to do. And now I'm not at all suggesting that it's unimportant to come to theological conclusions about your eschatology. No, those things are very important because they're in God's word. But as John Stott so rightly said about this text, he wrote, the purpose of this passage is to fortify one another in our bereavement, not answer academic questions about eschatology. 
Okay, let me say that again. The, the purpose of this passage is to fortify one another in our bereavement, not answer academic questions about eschatology. If we're not careful about how we approach this text, we can start to focus on all the wrong questions that this text doesn't address. Just to be absolutely clear here, Paul says nothing about when Jesus Christ will return. He says nothing about the nature of the death and resurrection of unbelievers or or who the archangel is in this text or the tribulation and the rapture or where Jesus goes after he has gathered all of his people together. I mean, we can definitely look at other places in the Bible to find answers to these important questions, but for the most part, I am not going to address any of these issues because Paul doesn't address these issues. And it's not the point of this text. The Apostle Paul has a much more narrow focus here. These words are written to comfort Christians about the destiny of other believers who have passed away. The goal, the main goal, is to encourage the saints with hope. So that's my goal today, to encourage you with hope. And then for for you to go and encourage one another with this same hope. So here's point number one, encourage one another with the hope of the resurrection. Come with me now to verse 13. This is how Paul begins this section. He writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It seems like the topic of Christian death was something the Thessalonians were unsure of or confused about, which makes sense when you consider the reality that Paul and his fellow missionaries didn't have a lot of time to teach these Thessalonian Christians. It it would have been impossible to cover every single topic of the scriptures and, and inform them on all matters of the faith when they were driven out so quickly by their persecutors. And so in order to fill this void in their knowledge, Paul chooses to address the issue here. Now, what might have caught your attention, what's very interesting here is that instead of talking about the dead as those who have died, he refers to them as those who are asleep. And this wasn't something that was unique to the Apostle Paul himself. Other biblical authors used sleep as a way of describing the dead. Let me give you one example. In John chapter 11, verse 11 to 14, after saying these things, he, that is Jesus, okay, this is Jesus speaking, said to the disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Right? That's what happens when people go to sleep. In a few hours, they wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. It becomes clear in a place like John chapter 11 that being asleep in certain contexts was synonymous with being dead. This kind of metaphor was probably used because the motionless appearance of the body was the same both in sleep and in death. 
Now, the, the, the problem is that some people have used this asleep language to argue that the soul is asleep in death along with the body. Okay, if, if you've ever heard of this, this is known as soul sleep. Just like how we're unconscious when we're, when we're asleep in bed every night, in the same way there is no consciousness when we're dead in the grave. But is that really what happens? Or are, are the dead just unconscious or for, for however many years until the second coming of Jesus Christ? I mean, no, that's not the case at all. I mean, we can easily go to other places in the Bible to see that at the point of death, the soul is very much alive and separated from the body. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, Paul writes, yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And he said something very similar in Philippians that he would rather die because it meant being with Christ. And that was far better. Luke chapter 23, verse 43, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says to the thief, truly I say to you, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Even though their bodies were going to be buried in a tomb, Jesus knew that their souls would immediately rise and go to glorious paradise. That was true then and it is still true today. When a Christian dies, their physical body goes down into the grave, but their soul rises up to be with Jesus. Your friends and family members that have died as Christians are presently in this very moment with Jesus. They are fully aware, They are fully awake, and I would add they are full of incomprehensible joy. I mean, we've been thinking a lot about what it means to delight in God, and that experience for us is is always a battle. There are always things that are distracting us, but these people are perfectly delighting in God right now in this very moment. But as good as that is, that is not how the story ends. It's not going to stay that way forever. And the Apostle Paul wanted believers to properly be informed about the fate of the Christian dead because he didn't want them to grieve hopelessly. Look again at verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that, here's the purpose, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. If, if they don't get this right, and, and if they just embrace and adopt all the notions of the unbelieving world around them, then they will grieve the loss of their fellow saints without any real hope. Wrong theology leads to grieving hopelessly, but right theology leads to real hope. Now, it's so important, so, so important to see here that Paul never belittles or prohibits grief. It would be absolutely wrong for you to go up to a fellow believer who has lost the loved one in the Lord and rebuke them for crying in sorrow. The idea here is that Christians rightly informed grieve a different way. It is a grief that is transformed. It is grief with a bitter taste, but one that is softened by the sweetness of hope. And what is the hope that Paul is referring to here? It is the hope 
of the resurrection. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In order to convince the Thessalonians about the hope of the resurrection, Paul points them first to the gospel as the foundation of their hope. Without the gospel, there is no hope. If Jesus didn't truly die and rise again, then we would have no basis for the hope of the resurrection. But he says here, with full conviction and confidence, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. I think it's important that we pause here for a moment and ponder the first part of that little gospel confession. Christ died. Just think about that for a moment. Death is not a hypothetical for Christ. He himself experienced a real death on a cross. And although the focus of this passage is primarily on the glory of the resurrection, I believe the mention of the death of Christ is deliberately put here to remind us that our Lord knows firsthand what it means to die. And therefore, he's able to, to, to sympathize with our grieving hearts. Jesus truly died But that's not how the story ends for Jesus, is it? As Paul confesses here, as he carries on, he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that God the Father did not abandon the soul of Christ to Hades or allow his flesh to see corruption. Acts chapter 2 verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. His was the first real resurrection. And because this is all true, because Jesus died and rose again, we can be certain that the Christian dead will also be raised, which is where he goes next in this verse. For since we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead. Now, I think sometimes we can read this verse and understand it to be saying that when Jesus returns, he will bring with him the very souls of Christians who have died. Which, mind you, I I do believe to be true. I believe that when Christ comes, he is bringing with him the souls of all that have been at rest in his presence. But I don't think that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this verse here. You see, there are essentially two ways to understand what he's saying. He's either saying that God will bring the souls of dead Christians from heaven with Jesus' return, or he's saying that God will bring the bodies of dead Christians from the grave in the same way that Jesus was raised. So which is it? Is it from heaven or from the grave? And and based on the overall flow and logic of verse 14, I understand Paul to be saying the latter, that God will bring the bodies of dead Christians from the grave in the same way that Jesus was raised. And the reason I understand it that way is because the first part of verse 14, where it says Christ died and rose again, serves as the basis for the second part of verse 14, Christians dying, falling asleep, and then being brought with him. 
the, the, the two parts there need to correspond with one another in order for, for this verse to make sense. And, and so the question is, brought from where? Well, it's brought from the grave with Jesus or in the same way as Jesus was brought up from the grave. Just as the Father did not abandon Jesus to the grave, the Father will not abandon, ultimately abandon his people to the grave. And we are to take this hope of the resurrection and be encouraged and go and encourage others with it. Secondly, we are to encourage one another with the hope of unification. When the day of Jesus' return comes and the resurrection takes place, the whole entire universal church will be perfectly united and it will begin with the unity of the body and the soul. So the souls of dead Christians will be united with their physical bodies. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. What, what Paul is about to say right, right here is, is no mere speculation or human invention. What he's about to say, he says with the authority of Jesus Christ. So listen up. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We may not know exactly when the second coming of Christ will take place, but when he does come, we know a few things about how that will all play out. And the first thing that Paul tells us here is that there will be a proper order to the resurrection. Christians who are still alive at the return of Jesus will not experience the resurrection first. They will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, I think this is another point here where we need to be careful that we don't read too much into the, the significance of the sequence of events. I don't believe Paul is talking about first being somehow better in quality and the second being any less. It's not like people who are resurrected first get this premium first-class resurrection bodies while the second get like the economical version. No, there's nothing in the text that would indicate such a distinction. I think based on how uninformed these Thessalonians were, along, again, with, with all the prevailing notions of the unbelieving world around them, it seems likely to me that they were unsure if their dead Christian friends and family would even take part of the resurrection at the coming of Jesus. They were probably asking, will they miss it? Will they ever be a part of it? And, and there's a concern in their voice. Will we ever see them again? And in response to these questions, you can imagine Paul saying with, with a big smile and, and, and joy in his face, do not worry. They're not going to miss the resurrection. They are not going to be left behind. As a matter of fact, they will be the first in line for the resurrection. And Paul explains how this will all play out next. Verse 16 for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. 
Notice here that when it, comes to, when it comes time for Jesus to take his people home to glory, he won't be sending along some kind of delegate or one of his angelic representatives to do his bidding. The emphasis of this verse is on the person of Jesus Christ. The Lord himself, King Jesus himself, will come down from heaven and call his people home to glory. And I think that is wonderful. He is not leaving this all-important task to anyone else. He is taking matters into his own hands, and he is going to make sure that this is done the right way. Now, we learn from this verse that there are three audible sounds that accompany the second coming of Christ. It begins with this cry of command. And that could be the command of the archangel, which is listed next, Or it could be the command that comes from Christ himself since many other passages talk about the dead rising at the voice of the Son of God. It's not entirely clear. We don't know for sure. What we see is that connected with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel is the sound of the trumpet of God. And in other places in the New Testament, we see that the sound of the trumpet signals the coming of the Lord and the resurrection of the dead. It's difficult to imagine what this will actually be like when it happens. I mean, there's a lot of symbolism that is bound up in this passage, which means that we need to be careful that we don't take everything so literally here. There's a lot of things that aren't perfectly clear to us. But what we do know is that this will be such a spectacular event that not a single person in the world will miss it. Some people have said that right here, that part, this verse that we're looking at, is the noisiest verse in the Bible. I love that. The return of Christ will be so incredibly loud that not even dead bodies buried six feet underground will be able to ignore his coming. Just as Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, and he came out. In the same way, this heavenly cry will resound across the world and the dead in Christ will rise first. On that day, Nick's body buried in Glen Oak Cemetery in Oakville. And Betty's body, all the way in Zambia, on the other side of the world, along with every Christian, will rise imperishable. And their perfect, glorious, resurrected bodies will be united with their soul and they will enjoy God forever. Whenever the Bible talks about the resurrection, it's referring to a physical bodily resurrection. The future glory will not be a mere spiritual experience that is disconnected from the body. Listen, we will experience glory spiritually emotionally, intellectually, and physically. What this all means is that our whole being will experience glory. 
It's helpful to understand that the Thessalonian church emerged during a time where there were many Greek philosophers and cultic teachers that, that taught that anything physical was inherently evil, including the human body. They believed that the soul was something good that was trapped in an evil physical vessel. And the ultimate goal was to free the soul from the body. But that doesn't align with what the Bible says. The human body, we have to understand, was a creation of God before the fall, which means that God created Adam and Eve in real flesh and blood, and he took a step back, he looked at his creation, and he said, it is good. And that tells us that there is inherent value and dignity with the human body. And then in the unfolding of God's great, and, and, and God's great plan of redemption, we see that God intends to redeem both the, the soul and the body. He has a purpose for the human body. He will not allow sin and death to gain victory over the body. He's winning the body back. He preserves the soul. And then he will resurrect the body And then he will reunite the soul with the body. And on that last day, our physical eyes will behold the beauty of the Lord's face. Our physical real ears will hear the beauty of the Lord's voice. And our physical hands will touch those beautiful hands that were pierced for our transgressions. And we will fully Enjoy the Lord forevermore. This is what awaits the Christian dead. They will have the honor of being first in line at this glorious resurrection. And so, my dear friends, don't grieve hopelessly. For those who have gone ahead, there is so much good to look forward to when Christ comes to take his people home. And don't think for a second that Christians who remain alive will merely watch this grand event take place from a distance. No, that's not what's going to happen. Because Paul says here that after the dead in Christ are raised first, those who remain alive are next in line. Secondly, alive Christians will be united with dead Christians. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up with them in the clouds. Christians who are still alive will participate in the glorious resurrection just like the dead in Christ. Now, I love this here. Paul, Paul says that we will be caught up with them. Not, not, not just him, not just Jesus, singular. It says them, plural, referring to all the saints who died and were just raised. You see, although the climax of this passage is heading towards our union with Jesus, The Bible does not shy away from the fact that we will be with our Christian loved ones again. We will see Betty Mubili again. We will see Nick Challies again. Brothers and sisters, you will see your loved ones who have gone ahead into glory. And what will that day be like? If Christ should come in our lifetime and and we are caught up in the clouds, in that moment it will be the sweetest and most glorious reunion the world has ever seen. 
The people that you have missed so, so, so much in this world, you will finally be able to see in perfect, imperishable, immortal resurrection bodies that will never, ever taste death again. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for that day. It already sounds way too good, and yet that is not the best part of the story. Our corporate joy will be full and complete and perfect because all together the universal church will be united with Jesus. All Christians will be united with Jesus. Verse 17 Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. To meet the Lord in the air. That right there is the crown blessing. That right there is the climax of of this passage. The soul will unite with the body. The Christians who are alive will unite with Christians who were once dead. And then all together, we as a universal church will be united with Jesus Christ. And don't miss how this verse ends. And so we will always be with the Lord. Always. Forever. Endless. Eternal. For an infinite amount of time, we are talking about a union with Jesus Christ that is everlasting. I suspect that when that moment comes, when Jesus returns and he gathers his people together, we will behold the face of Jesus Christ. And in that very moment, we will know that living this life of faith and repentance even amidst all the affliction and persecution and suffering and pain and loss and sorrow, all of it will be worth it because we get to be with Jesus and the story of our lives will end with the words, they lived happily ever after the end. Come, Lord Jesus, come, we pray. Amen.